Hi, everyone. Welcome to Reverb. I'm Calvin Pollock. And I'm Alex Helberg. On today's Reblurb, we introduce, explain, and instantiate the concept of genre in rhetorical studies. To help us analyze the recent genre controversy over Lil Nas X's Old Town Road and its many remixes, later in the show we'll be joined by Martha Sue Carnes, a PhD student in the Department of Rhetoric and Writing at the University of Texas at Austin. So, Calvin, conventionally on our Reblurb episodes, we like to start off with kind of a sketch or a skit related to the concept we're introducing. That's right, Alex. That tends to be a nice, light way to start things off, and it allows us to be creative and comedic instead of just dry, expository, and intellectual. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, right now it seems to me that none of this is very funny. Something's a little off. Okay, yeah, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. So how about this? Here's an idea. I'm just spitballing. I'm just, you know, you know, no, no okay. bad, no bad ideas at this stage. No bad ideas. Um, what if instead of doing a bit this time, we just kind of explain the fact that we conventionally start off these episodes with a bit? Wouldn't that be hilarious? You know, it'd be kind of like one of those like meta jokes. People love those. You know, they're kind of like real jokes, but smarter. And no, let's not do that. That feels a little hack. Too late. Genre is likely a term that you've heard before in day-to-day conversation. It's typically deployed to reference different styles of books, films, music, and other cultural forms. In this usage, it's a term that we often take for granted. A genre can be so easy to identify in everyday life that it seems insignificant. You just know it when you see it or hear it. You hear a song come on your radio, and you can probably easily identify what genre it belongs to just by listening to a few seconds of it. So why are genres so important to understanding communication, politics, and popular culture? One way to answer that question is to trace the evolution of the concept through rhetorical scholarship and practice across the ages. Throughout the history of rhetoric, both the definition and the term genre, and the ways that we classify what counts as a genre, have developed significantly. In Greek antiquity, participation in the various arenas of democratic life, or the demos, required training in one or more of three classical rhetorical genres. There was the forensic genre, practiced by speakers in courts of law, where strategic presentations of facts about a past event were used in order to adjudicate people's guilt or innocence. This often involved using the heuristic of stasis theory to help invent arguments, which you can learn more about in our re-blurb on the topic back in episode 12. By contrast, the deliberative genre involved speakers bringing forth arguments advocating some future action, often in political contexts and situations, such as a politician making a persuasive speech about a policy to an audience of other politicians who needed to be won over. This genre is inextricably linked with models of democracy, and even to this day there are numerous ways to deliberate about policy, depending on the kind of audience constituted by a particular deliberative body, the values of the communities affected by its policies, and the material constraints of the rhetorical situation. Finally, the epideictic genre, also known as the praise and blame speech, often serve both evaluative and commemorative functions for a community or audience. It is most often associated with memorializing a person or an event, as in the case of eulogies delivered at funerals or other kinds of memorial ceremonies, such as for great war victories or infamous tragedies. Epideictic also includes speeches that attempt to constitute a communal identity among listeners, such as many types of presidential and even more local base rallying campaign rhetoric. 
Apodictic borrows elements from deliberative and forensic rhetoric in that it considers events and actions from the past, as well as possible future outcomes, but it still remains rooted in arguing for a particular vision of the present moment and the audience's place within it. What we can see from these classical rhetorical genres is that each one emerges from a social practice of the society in which it is taking place. In other words, these genres are vehicles for critical social dynamics that uphold a society, from making and enforcing laws, to helping forge group identities and communal solidarity. These are, of course, primarily genres that are associated with a Western rhetorical tradition and societies which were influenced by it. Thus, they are not universally effective or even necessary genres to the maintenance of any society. A number of transnational and comparative rhetorical studies, which we'll cite in the show notes, delineate how diverse arrays of rhetorical practices and genres are used for other effects in different communities across the globe. But the key takeaway here is this. By and large, genres are used to accomplish a social action, to get things done in the world that we regularly need to get done. This point was underscored by Carolyn Miller in her landmark 1984 essay in the Quarterly Journal of Speech, Genre as Social Action. Rather than reducing our conception of genre to a mere consideration of abstract rules and formal features, in other words, groups of texts that look or sound similar to one another, Miller argues that we need to look at the recurring situations that give rise to the rules in the first place, as well as what following those rules allows those texts to do in the world. What kinds of actions are they used to perform in response to certain types of situations? This way of thinking about genre expands the term's definition beyond the classical boundaries of the forensic, deliberative, and epideictic. According to Miller, a genre is formed when recurring, typified situations give rise to responses that bear similar characteristics. In this way, we can identify genres in most of the activities that we do in daily life, from something as simple as making a grocery list, personally I write items down in the order that best represents how I move through the grocery store, arrays of interpersonal genres, such as making an apology to a friend or loved one, or more complex mediated genres, like recording a podcast. In any case, genre as a concept helps us understand the methods that we've developed for inventing rhetorical texts that help us take action in response to familiar situations. Building off of Miller's work, Carol Birkenkotter and Thomas Hucken worked to extend the conception of genre from a socio-cognitive perspective. They examined how genres operate as a type of situated cognition, as they write, quote, our knowledge of genres is derived from and embedded in our participation in the communicative activities of daily and professional life, which continues to develop as we participate in the activities of the culture. Additionally, this view of genre calls attention to how genres are best considered in terms of how they function in communities of practice, because, as they claim, quote, genre conventions signal a discourse community's norms, epistemology, ideology, and social ontology. This critical insight helps us think about and analyze how genres develop out of specific community practices and situated insider knowledges. It can explain how, for example, scholarly journal articles between the humanities and the sciences tend to look drastically different as a result of distinctive scholarly practices that shape how the knowledge circulated in journal articles is used by scholars in their respective fields. In addition to their focus on genre performances being situated in discrete discourse communities, Birkenkotter and Hucken underscore a further crucial element of genre, which they refer to as dynamism. 
While they acknowledge the fact that, as Miller and others have pointed out previously, genres are typified responses to situations, there still inheres the potential for change, variation, and flexibility in how genres can look, or how they can perform the actions that they do in the world. In the author's words, quote, As the world changes, both in material conditions and in collective and individual perceptions of it, the types of genres produced by typification must themselves undergo constant incremental change. This insight usefully illustrates how genres are not completely static, unchanging, formulaic sets of rules. Rather, they, quote, are always sites of contention between stability and change in response to the sociocognitive needs of individual users. Of course, any conversation about the fixity and flexibility of rules for how to write and perform genres is incomplete without a consideration of politics and power dynamics. This aspect of genre is addressed in detail in Vijay K. Bhatia's 1997 article, The Power and Politics of Genre. Using a variety of case studies, Bhatia exposes the ways in which surface-level genre conventions, such as citation practices and linguistic framing strategies, can teach us a great deal about the power dynamics involved in producing texts according to the norms of particular genres. Now, this could arguably be a natural aspect of nearly any genre. However, what is of primary interest to Bhatia is instances in which powerful people in communities of practice use their political clout to both determine and protect the rules and norms for contributing new, innovative knowledge transmitted through a particular genre. Here, Bhatia invokes the concept of gatekeeping to help explain the ways that people with certain amounts of power over a community have the ability to act as arbiters for what is allowable within the confines of a genre and, by proxy, which kinds of practices or performances are deemed unfit or unallowable. For example, if I tried to submit a free verse, imagistic poem to a scientific journal, it would almost certainly be swiftly rejected. I could try and make an argument that my poem lends some interesting insights to the scientific study of a particular field, but because it does not contain the formal elements of a scientific journal article, for example, it lacks a reproducible experimental methodology, a reporting of data or results, and a discussion of the implications of the findings, it is not in any way useful to other scientists reading the journal. It does not help advance the knowledge of the specific field of people reading it, and thus would be incompatible with the motives and norms of the community. In this case, one could make an argument that the gatekeeping practices of this scientific journal are functioning in a useful way. However, there are other contexts in which gatekeeping acts as a way to consolidate the power of particular insiders to the overt exclusion of the other voices and knowledges. Bhatia illustrates just such a case through the example of world Englishes, the widely observed phenomenon of the English language spreading as a kind of lingua franca to different parts of the world that were not primarily English-speaking before. In the context of many genres, Bhatia points out, the rules for how to perform English discourse in transnational contexts are still either directly handed down from, or at least strongly shaped by, the conventions of more wealthy and powerful countries where English is prevalently spoken, such as the US and the UK. What this amounts to, writes Bhatia, is a failure to acknowledge the sources of variations, especially those of marginality and exclusion, giving the impression that there is, or should be, no variation in the way genres are constructed, interpreted, or used. In other words, certain types of gatekeeping, if practiced in an uncritical or unjustified way, can result in the constricting of genre conventions and an opposition to changing them. 
So, as a case in point of this genre gatekeeping phenomenon, we're going to examine the popular explosion and subsequent controversy surrounding Lil Nas X's breakout hit song, Old Town Road. For a pop song, Old Town Road has incredibly distinctive musical composition. It begins with harmonizing banjo plucks that gradually become more complex as Lil Nas's vocals crescendo into the first hook. The opening lines... invoke both the linguistic voice and archetypal image of a lone cowboy. Then, the verse drops with a minimal yet driving trap beat and bouncing bass line accompanying the now famous line The song proceeds in a similar stylistic fashion, with minimally auto-tuned lyrics conjuring images that recur in country songs, juxtaposed with common references in trap songs. For instance, Lil Nas sings about his preference for riding on a horse, as opposed to you can whip your horse. all while wearing a cowboy hat from Gucci and Wrangler jeans simultaneously. Arguably, the lyrics and instrumental combine to create a genre-bending effect. By borrowing from both country and trap genre conventions, Lil Nas X forges a strange hybrid of the two styles. Can't nobody tell me nothing. Another strange aspect of Old Town Road was its hyper-mediated, multi-genre path to global smash hit status. After being self-released by Lil Nas X in December of 2018, the song gained viral popularity as the soundtrack for a series of video memes on the social media platform TikTok, which then quickly made their way to YouTube. Another YouTube video that popularized the full hook and verse iteration of the song used as its visual element gameplay footage from the western noir video game Red Dead Redemption 2. That video currently boasts just over 77 million views as of this recording. Since the track was originally self-produced by Lil Nas X and not released by an official record label, radio DJs were forced to rip recordings of the song from YouTube in order to play them on the radio, per the demands of their audiences. In a matter of days, though, Old Town Road rose through the ranks of the Billboard Hot 100, the Hot Country songs, and the hot R&B hip-hop songs simultaneously. As of this recording, it has enjoyed a solid 15 weeks at the top of the Hot 100 chart and is widely considered one of the standard bearers for crossover success in the contemporary U.S. music industry. However, just weeks after the song's meteoric rise, controversy arose when Old Town Road was unceremoniously removed from the Billboard Hot Country Songs chart. Following a great deal of online public outcry, Billboard issued a statement to Rolling Stone addressing the decision. Upon further review, it was determined that Old Town Road by Lil Nas X does not currently merit inclusion on Billboard's country charts. When determining genres, a few factors are examined, but first and foremost is musical composition. While Old Town Road incorporates references to country and cowboy imagery, it does not embrace enough elements of today's country music to chart in its current version. In response to this decision, country music superstar Billy Ray Cyrus collaborated on a remix of the song with Lil Nas X, 
in which he added vocals to the song's hook as well as an additional verse, in keeping with the lyrical style of the two previous verses. Hat down, cross town, living like a rock star, spend a lot of money on my brand new guitar. Baby's got a habit, diamond rings and Fendi sports bras, riding down Rodeo in my Maserati sports car. Prior to its release, Cyrus posted a tweet directed at Lil Nas X. At Lil Nas X, been watching everything going on with OTR. When I got thrown off the charts, Waylon Jennings said to me, take this as a compliment. It means you're doing something great. Only outlaws are outlawed. Welcome to the club. To help us further analyze the genre and style of this song, as well as the ensuing controversy over Billboard's decision, we're joined by Martha Sue Carnes, a PhD student in the Department of Rhetoric and Writing at the University of Texas at Austin. This summer, Martha is teaching a course called The Rhetoric of Rap. Martha, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. So I just want to pose a question to the room. In our general opinion, is Old Town Road a country song? I think it's not song and my argument for that is not normative it's purely descriptive like i just think that descriptively given where country is right now as a genre it does not fit in with either the formal features of a typical country song or the lyrical content ideological content like the kinds of people who are listening to it it's just not it's not a cultural form that fits with like the hegemonic country genre in 2019. Interesting. So if you had to reclassify it, if you if if we were to put this in a genre box, what would you what would you label this as? I would just label it as rap or pop. Gotcha. Pop pop rap basically. Interesting. Okay. I I mean I still I think it's rap too. I think it's country and rap. Sure. But I do I see your point. And I don't know with the like, I don't know where country music is in 2019. Um, yeah, I, I, well, and, and I should, <laughs> yeah, no, I should I should clarify that that's entirely judging from like flipping through radio stations uh, in the car and the kind of stuff I hear, as well as I mean I think we can talk about the move that Billboard made to strip this from the country charts. What might have been motivating that? I think speaks to like the norms of the country genre right now and that this this song is not in keeping with those norms. What so like what what about it doesn't keep with the norms? What do you think, I guess? I'm wondering. I guess the instrumental, the lyrics and even like the performative social identity of the artist, well Nas X, like he is not performing the identity of a country star. He's performing the identity of a pop star or a rap star or even like just a social media star. That's kind of fascinating to think about that. I mean, because, you know, one of the things that, you know, I think probably comes along with genre, if we take that sort of Birkenkotter and Hucken definition that talk about, you know, that there's norms, epistemology, ideology, and all these things wrapped up in genre. I'm sure that identity probably plays a role somewhere in there as well. And so if we try to think about, you know, genres as kind of, you know, performing a certain identity, right, or an identity of a certain community, 
you know, is performing a country identity just about, you know, I mean, well, this was this is kind of interesting, too, because it was cited in the Billboard, their statement that they made to Rolling Stone. While this song contains cowboy imagery uh, and other things like that in its lyrics, it's primarily the musical composition that they use to determine what kind of genre box to put something in and so so to their mind you know the i the sort of social identity of the of the person making the music is doesn't matter quite isn't quite as important as the musical composition which right. i think is kind of a fascinating like that's a i mean that seems like an arbitrary distinction though right <laughs> like because of course identity is important i think it's really important to talk about the extent to which race is part of the decision that Billboard made. Yes. And a lot of people read that decision as racially coded. There was a New York Times article. This was right after the remix, the first remix came out with Billy Ray. And the headline was, Lil Nas X added Billy Ray Cyrus to Old Town Road. Is it country enough for Billboard now? <laughs> um, and there are like multiple, you know, people in, in country music, like in the institution of country music, who were kind of like calling out the decision by Billboard as racially motivated. Shane Morris, a former record label executive in Nashville, said they said there were compositional problems because they didn't know how to justify it any other way without sounding completely racist. Charles Hughes, the director of the Lynn and Henry Turley Memphis Center at Rhodes College, said black artists have been influential in country a long, long way back. But country has rewarded white artists that have taken advantage of those influences without giving black artists the same opportunities. So to what extent, Martha, do you think like this is primarily racial and not about compositional features? Yeah, I I think it, it kind of goes with that whole identity thing you were saying. And of course, race is a part of identity. Right. I, I think I think uh, bringing up the composition, the compositional piece was probably the easiest way because it does have that trap beat is the easiest way to be like, nope, this isn't country because he will. Lil Nas X isn't performing a country identity in like the traditional or whatever sense of the term, but he he does kind of like um, in all his performances, he's wearing like this blinged out like cowboy gear right he posted he posted a picture of himself this was probably a while ago without a cowboy hat and was like oh my record label let me took the take the hat off for (laughs) uh for one picture and then he like put it back on and was like i gotta put it back on um that's fascinating so he, he i think he he's performing some sort of maybe like like a social media like cowboy identity or something yeah, and it seems like to a large extent he's parodying the identity of a country star. Yeah, and, and I like probably the identity of like a rap star too. Right. I, I think he's I think he's parodying parodying the idea of like a star in general, um, which like, by becoming a star in the way that he has. Right. No, I th- I think you're I think you're totally spot on, and I think that actually leads us very nicely into this other question. 
about, you know, what if we use something like Carolyn Miller's definition of genre to look at something like Old Town Road, which is what kind of social action is this genre performing, right? So if we follow it from, you know, kind of the social actions that we're pointing out here is that this is kind of like a, a parodied, almost like, you know, a, a different performance of all of these identities that's not quite country. It's not quite like a rap or like a pop star identity, but he's doing this parody song and he's getting like massively famous off of it. So, I mean, what does that tell us about, you know, like, I mean, maybe this is a new genre entirely. This is just something that's like a social media hype genre or something like that, where you're sort of playing the tropes of all of these genres off of one another to create this sort of crazy viral sensation. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think it's it's really important to talk about the multimedia aspect of this where it's not even enough to talk about like the genre of the song you have to talk about the genre of his tweets and as well as like these weird animated videos he's made for all of the remixes or at least his team has made right yeah um and and so all of that i think goes into the genre of what he's creating and i think that makes it distinct from country as well because that's not something that's at least as far as i know like very common in country uh yeah i would agree but with the rate that he like he posts these new like animated videos or like not like a video but just like an animated short or something he posts them at such a speed i like i don't know if that's common in any sort of genre like i would say it's a thing we'd probably see more in rap or pop or something right even even going a step farther, he'll do like basically like Vine length or TikTok length or whatever, like 20, se- like not 20 seconds, but like 10 second clips of his songs with right. like various things. Like um, the, the one that stands out in my mind, it's his song like Family and he like put it to the intro to the sweet life of Zach and Cody. And it's really funny because <laughs> yeah, that yeah. song sounds like it could be the theme for that show. <laughs> um, nice. And he, he, he'll do that all the time. If you go through his Twitter feed, it's it's all that sort of stuff. With the with the video he just released, the Area 51 one, it's it's with further remix and it's it's like it shows them storming Area 51. I just like I wanna know like how who does this? How do they do this so fast? Right. And the and and there was an earlier version of that video too that was because this is the remix that has Billy Ray again, like Billy Ray's part repeated. Um, as well as Young Thug and Mason Ramsey, and there was an earlier right. there was an earlier version of this video that was a bunch of like emoji faces representing them right. singing their verses. Right? right, they made an Area Fifty One version of it just to kind of like follow the meme of the day. Right. Yeah. So this is something that's like constantly evolving, multimedia wise, and like intergenerically in a way that's not really traceable to the formal genre features of hip-hop or country. But I agree with you that if it's closer to one, it's probably hip-hop because there are a lot of rap artists who like really prolifically put out new stuff. Not to bring this back to sort of like, a, oh man, the internet's changed everything, but like if it seems like something that could only be born out of the age that we live in now because you know it, it's something that shucks all of the kind of like 
it, the all of the formal traditions that would place it into one or another genre category uh and it kind of does like blend a little bit it borrows a little bit from one genre mixes in a little bit from another but ultimately like at the end of the day this is just somebody who's incredibly savvy with his uh with his content production and really sort of seems like he knows what he's doing and can you know i mean he's ridden this the success of Old Town Road has been, you know, 15 weeks at the top of the Hot 100 now. So, I mean, clearly, whatever he's doing, it's working. Yeah, I I do think it's his success is in large part to how savvy he is on social media with what he's doing. I mean, he, I don't know if he's, I retweeted this, that Peppa Pig album slaps. And then, like, <laughs> Nick Jr. tweeted back at him, like... And then he like tweeted Dolly Parton, like, let's get Dolly Parton on the Old Town Road remix. And Dolly Parton tweeted back. So maybe that's going to happen. Yeah, no, uh, that, but that, that I, literally might happen. By yeah. the time we release this episode, that might already be a thing. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be old news. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> old Town News. Old Town News. <laughs> old Town News. They're going to be like, why didn't they talk about the Dolly Parton remix? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was on vacation. A couple weeks ago, and this family, they were, uh, we were at the beach, and this family was, um, had their radio playing, and I swear I heard Old Town Road, like, six times in one hour. <laughs> and, like, it's not a long song, so that's not, it's not that much, but you're like, oh my gosh, like, that's so much. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I, none of these people... I, I feel like um, we're the sort of people that are following uh, Lil Nas X on Twitter or something. So it, it, was, it was like a family and like they're young kids and kids love Old Town Road. Um, so I'm sure that's why I was played so much. But I was like, I was just like amazed by how much I heard it in that one hour. Right. It's huge with everyone, like down to like, you know, elementary school kids. Like there was that yeah. amazing video oh, of, yes. of him performing at an elementary school and almost every kid knew every word yeah so I, I i don't i don't know what accounts for that but it does seem like this this is just kind of the soundtrack of of now right and kids i i've worked with kids um in the past before grad school i worked with kindergartners and they just like they love rap anyway like <laughs> they always want to listen to rap i i don't that's a whole other thing. <laughs> where, where does Lil Nas X go from here? Does he continue uh, just making remixes of Old Town Road? Uh, <laughs> can he ever get out of the shadow of this song? Um, and, and also, what genre do we see him working in going forward? That is such a good question. Does he ever escape Old Town Road? Um, I don't know. Because he, like, he makes fun of all the remixes. He like parodies himself. He's like gonna do another remix but like at what point does that get old you know i i do enjoy his uh his ep seven basically every all of the songs kind of do the like genre blending thing like it's rock rap rock pop that sort of thing panini's really good rodeo is really good these are all things all songs um none of them in my opinion none of them have the uh None of them have that same like wow factor. I don't know. I don't know where he goes next. I don't. I don't. What is what is life after Old Town Road look like? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's is almost... there life after Old Town Road? Who knows? Yeah, Question it's... for all of us. Yeah, really, right. really, very it's... existential. Yeah. Well, because we're living in like 
you know, hell world where like nothing, <laughs> nothing ever changes, but it's also constantly changing. Yeah. Yeah. Old Town Road is the only constant that we have in our life right now. It's the only thing, that, <laughs> it's the only stability any of us have. Oh my gosh. <laughs> too, right. Sorry, that was too real. Oh. No, no, I think... Uh, no. I think that's actually a great note to le- to leave it on. Um, Martha, any final thoughts? It, it was fun to be here. Had a blast talking about. I love Lil Nas X, and I could talk about him forever. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we'll have to have you back whenever uh, his next number one hit comes out. The next remix. The we'll next just, remix. We'll, the do, next we'll remix. do another yeah. one of these for every remix. <laughs> yeah. That'll oh. Be uh, oh man. Until the end of time. Awesome. Um, so would you like to uh, plug your Twitter or anything? Right. Yes. Twitter at underscore Martha Sue. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us. <laughs> uh, enjoy the next remix of Old Town Road. I, uh, I hope we all do. <laughs> yeah, hopefully Dolly Parton's on there. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producers at large are Caitlin Rossi, Colleen Storm, Sophie Wadzak, and Ryan Mitchell. Our graphic design manager is Kari Van Nortwick, and our social media manager is Lizzie Donaldson. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.